This is Anne Fremantle introducing another of WNYC's PEN, P-E-N, portraits. What is PEN, P-E-N? PEN is an independent world association of writers. The initials P-E-N stand for poets, playwrights, essayists, editors, novelists, and by implication of the initials for all writers. PEN was founded in 1921 in London by John Galsworthy, who became its first international president. American PEN was founded in 1922 with Booth Tarkington as its first president. The present president of International PEN is novelist V.S. Pritchett. The present president of American PEN is the young novelist Jerzy Kosinski. PEN has over 80 centers in 60 countries of Europe, North and South America, Asia and Africa. World membership is around 10,000. American PEN, which has its headquarters in New York, but draws its members from all over the United States, has 1,500 members. Membership is by invitation of the membership committee extended to published writers of demonstrative accomplishment. What is PEN for? What does PEN do? PEN exists to promote worldwide friendship and intellectual cooperation among men and women of letters. PEN is a purely literary association working in a practical way on all matters of concern to writers generally. Better protection of literary copyrights, better deals for translators, workshops for beginning writers in underprivileged areas, lectures and receptions for foreign authors coming here. PEN has no politics, but it is against the imprisonment of writers for political reasons. And PEN members in the PEN Charter pledge themselves to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and the community to which they belong. PEN is therefore against all censorship of the written word. Speaking today over WNYC on another of these PEN portraits is Gerald Sykes, who was educated at the University of Cincinnati in Columbia and did graduate work at the Sorbonne. He was head of the Office of War Information for North Africa during and after the war, which led to his first book, The Nice American, 1951, published by Farrah Strauss. His best-known book is The Hidden Remnant, 1962, published by Harper and Rowe. His forthcoming Foresights, Self-Evolution and Survival, it will be published by Bob's Medal in the, this fall and is a sequel to The Hidden Remnant. Mr. Sykes is Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at the New School, and he's going to talk about this question of interdisciplinary studies, of the relationship, I think is what you're interested in, the relationship between science and creative art, creative evolution. Is that right, Gerald? Yes, that's true. I, I, is, I should say that my first uh, discovery of Penn was that it, it was very interdisciplinary itself. Uh, I, th I had believed that the uh, words P-E, the initials P-E-N stood for Poets, Essayists, and Novelists. I found that the, instead they stood for pu Publishers, Editors, and Newspaper Men. <laughs> but uh, even so, I enjoyed it, and I've gone to many meetings there that were extremely interesting, and it's always a good place to drop in. My book, since we're talking about that... Yes, indeed. Uh, ...is chiefly about self-evolution and survival, although it has the... Title Foresights. The title Foresights refers to foresights of other people, not myself, which I have brought together because I do believe that the important thing is to get the literary world, for example, to be interested in science and in philosophy and in religion and other things that are extremely pertinent today. 
I have, for example, a class at the new school of over 100 students, and I took a poll of what religion they belonged to. Uh, they were all born Catholics, Protestants, or Jews. Every one of them responded that he or she was a Buddhist. So you see, we're changing. We're changing very rapidly, and the reason they went toward Buddhism, very simply, was that uh, Buddhism has no creation myth, and it's strictly scientific. As a matter of fact, it is the forerunner of modern psychology. And modern psychology plays a part in this book of mine. That's a very interesting point. Do you think that's why so many of the young people, not only in, in your class, but all over America and all over the world, are turning to Buddhism uh, and to the Far East uh, for insights and foresights? Yes, I think it has a great deal to do with it because they uh, find, for example, a great relevant, uh, very close relevance between uh, uh, Buddhism and its ideas and uh, the picture that's presented to us in one of the most important new works on biology by Jacques Monod, which is called Chance and Necessity. And Monod ends up very close to what the Buddha discovered, which was simply that all life is sorrowful. And that what we have to do is to find some way of escaping from the sorrow. And he, he tells us the ways. And the first way is to develop the right attitude, and the second way is to develop the right means of livelihood. Now, it's this right means of livelihood that gives our students a lot of trouble because it is very hard to make a living and at the same time believe in what you're doing. The very nature of modern technology is to put people into jobs which they don't enjoy. The spirit of craftsmanship is dead, and the people here who are working on this uh, helping us very much, are usually forced into positions of doing jobs that they don't especially care to do because they have to work with technical equipment that is necessary for the promulgation of ideas which they themselves didn't develop. But there need not be a conflict between the people who develop ideas, the scientists, the thinkers, the artists, and the people who carry them into the world, who promulgate them. And I, one of the purposes of my book is to show that there can be a very harmonious relationship between the people who actually originate ideas and those who carry them out. Carry them out. The trouble is that the United States has changed in a very short time from a culture that was predominantly agricultural. Agricultural. Right after World War One, we were over 50% of our population was engaged in agriculture. Today, 5% is engaged. Then we turned into a largely manufacturing country. Well, now we found that manufacture can be left to robos or semi-robos. So the emphasis today is on merchandising, and everybody is selling every somebody else something that he doesn't really want. <laughs> and that job then for us is to find out what we really want, what we can get along without, and concentrate above all on the things that we really do want. Do want to do as well as do want to buy. Surely. Exactly, do want to do. And uh, you'd be amazed at the number of people who come to a class and say, 
uh, what is it that I really want to do? I don't know. And then by a process of questioning and comparison with other students, they do find what they want to do amazingly fast. I have not known one who hasn't found at least some sort of clue to what he or she wanted to do. And that's that's the purpose of... Well, that's, that's the purpose of, the, of education, That's the purpose of education. It's certainly one of the chief purposes of the new school. And the new school is a singularly good place to observe this because it brings together the older generation, which is still remembering the horrors of the Depression of the 1930s, and it has fathered and mothered a lot of children who never heard of the Depression and who believe that everything is quite wonderful and the age of prosperity is here. Nixon has done all he could to destroy that illusion, and they are therefore now being uh, outraged and at the same time shocked and the same time woken up. Well, that's always a good thing to wake up, isn't it? Yes. Uh, that's one of the things Buddha emphasized very strongly, I think, in the in the Buddhist faith. The whole idea is, is wakefulness. That's right. And um, that's, that's what right. your job is in this new book. That's yes, right. In, in I'm trying to wake wake people up to the real situation they, they're yes. in. For example, if they're poets, let's say take, take a poet like Robert Lowell, who's one of our leading poets, or Stanley Kunitz, or another leading poet. Such people can get out of touch with the world as it is. I know much better the painting world and the composing world because I'm very, I married into the painting world and I know all the leading painters and I was practically present at the suicide of Jackson Pollock and at the suicide of Mark Rothko, who were very close friends of mine. I know what troubles these people are up against. I was also close to Nicholas de Stael, who similarly committed suicide. We have had a rough time as our most talented people, the people who produce the new things in our 20th century art, have come up against the stern realities of life as it is lived here in America today. Because the United States is quite different from Europe in this respect. You can coast along in Europe, but you cannot coast in the United States. We are up against chaos. But is chaos a real reason for suicide? I mean, wasn't Sylvia Plath, for instance, wasn't, to name a great poet who committed suicide, wasn't her suicide a suspension of reality in some way? Sylvia Plath was a very good poet for three weeks. She was not a very good writer until then. Her novel is a giveaway on that. But the last three weeks of her life, when she did determine to kill herself, were remarkably beautiful uh, in the... Production. Production. She deserted her baby, she deserted her husband, etc. But she produced extraordinary poetry uh, and gave up all the uh, rather slick skill that she'd shown before that in getting grants, etc., etc. She then put herself into the job of writing poetry, and that was all. And she killed herself. And that, that was so. that. But do, do you think, I mean, having known these, these famous suicides that you have known, uh, do you think that it was a fear of chaos or a, a, a fear of facing reality that that made them do this? Or was it uh, rather a, a kind of suspension, a wish to suspend reality, uh, being unaware of what suicide really meant? I mean, it, it's awfully difficult to face the fact that you will not be anymore. Each it? case it was different. Jackson committed suicide, I would say, because, well, first of all, let's go over his dates. He didn't begin to make any money until 1955, and in 56, 
he killed himself. In other words, within one year, he had come in contact with the business, the nasty business of the art world, which is just about as nasty as any business can be. There's a beautiful line in Shakespeare which expresses it. Shakespeare has a line in one of his sonnets which is, Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. <laughs> this means that dealers stink a lot more than ordinary bankers and businessmen. And, um, and Jackson was up against that. Mark, on the other hand, had spent 10 years in Russia studying for the rabbinate and also for the Communist Party. And he had a sense of what was serious and what was not serious, which prevented him from enjoying little things. He did not enjoy his children. He did not enjoy flowers. He did not enjoy sunsets. He didn't enjoy the occasional good, clean air that he got at Provincetown or at East Hampton when he came there. And he therefore wasn't able to keep going on little things. And I'm quite convinced that it's little things that keep us alive. That's a very good point, I think. That, uh, you, as you said earlier on, it's the right livelihood idea yeah. that yeah. Is, is getting to the young and yes, to and the they young believe they believe this very much, and it puts. That's why they go into the uh, places in the uh, in remote parts of New Mexico or Vermont or wherever in the United States and establish their new communes. And, uh, uh, I, for example, Steve Lerner had a brilliant dialogue recently with Max Lerner. I've known both of them for an awfully long time. And Steve was explaining why he was growing his own food and why he was living the kind of life he was living in Vermont. He had built the house himself. He wanted to do everything for himself. That now, is. he's therefore a very yeah. significant figure. He could be a successful columnist for the Village Voice, as he was, but he didn't want to go on with that kind of metropolitan life. He wanted to find something real for himself. R right livelihood. That's Remember right. Buddha also said that he never was, he was not sure that a, b a butcher could be saved? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> he had a strong feeling about animal life and about the yes. sacredness of life. Uh, yes. Um, yes, and so many of the young are taking to doing their own, making their own things, aren't they? I mean, I, I, I just went to a wedding and the bride and the groom, one, the bride made um, something or other, pottery, I think, and the groom was a, was a glass blower. Yes. And they were the children of bankers and, and um, politicians. Yes. It, it was quite interesting, that, I thought. One of my best students has a business in the garment center, which is beginning to do rather badly because so many women buy their clothes now at thrift shops, and <laughs> he therefore has financed his son in a pottery business, and uh, he himself has started up a bookstore, and although he does keep the garment business going and doesn't uh, neglect it because there is money, there is a bit of money that left, he still puts his chief interest in the development of just these ideas, and he sells all these books, especially the books about Buddhism and so forth, and very serious books, uh, at 20% discount, so that he can put put them over and put over his ideas. He wants to live that life. His his favorite book at the moment is the Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley, Aldous Huxley which is an anthology of mystics. Yeah, it's a beautiful book too. And a very beautiful book, yeah. and he appreciates what Huxley went through. He, he appreciates that whole story. And this is the new mystique which has grabbed America. And there's no doubt about it, it's going to spread from New York. It already has. It's in California. It's all over the United States. It's a sort of 
marvelous thing developing in this country, and it's not only among students, it's among other people. There's a scattered fellowship of very remarkable people. Remember, we have people who have given up easy ways of making money. George Marshall could have made a lot of money after the war, but instead he chose to father the Marshall Plan. Dean Acheson, who thought up the Marshall Plan, could have made a great deal of money as a lawyer, much more as a lawyer, but he stayed on in the State Department. Uh, Edwin Reischauer, after being ambassador to Japan, became a mere professor at Harvard, but he could have made a great deal more money. Imagine what he could have done as a businessman bringing in plastics to which Japan, which Japan needs very badly for the manufacture of television sets. My friend Tom Finletter, who is uh, 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 was Secretary was of the Air Force, yes. he, he, Tom could have gone into the law practice and made great sums of money, but he did not do it. We don't all go the way of those horrible men who surrounded President Nixon. Well, isn't this exciting and, and good? And, and what is so good about it is that you find that so many of the young are doing it. A lot oh, of the young people yeah. are doing it. They, they really want to be possessed by what in psychology is called an archetype. In the same way that Bach wrote his chorale preludes the last two years of his life when he was dying and he was blind, he wrote the chorale preludes, which nobody wanted to hear. They were so unpopular that Mendelssohn had to revive, had to discover them, revive them, and play them about 75 years after Bach's death in the 19th century instead of in the 18th century. And, but Mendelssohn dug them up and played them, and now we all appreciate they're his best music. And what about uh, Titian painting marvelous nudes at the age of 99? Uh, the, there are people who are possessed by an archetype. The, the, the archetype of art, in this case, gets hold of them. And this is true of the scientists. Why is René DeBoss writing these marvelous books that he's doing right now on, on biology? Yes, that's very true, and and uh, I think that um, was your hidden remnant about these uh, the, these good people. Well, it was about the remnant. I take the word the word remnant comes from the prophet Isaiah, who with Amos was the uh, they were the first people to write in the uh, the what's known as the Old Testament. Uh, the uh, book of Genesis was not written until the, until about 300 B.C., but they they wrote roughly around 650 B.C. and they uh, they did. Uh, uh, they saw something, and Isaiah was writing about the Babylonian captivity and how the Israelis had survived it and had come back and were a nation. And he said, a very small remnant. And that hidden remnant made were, were holy enough to permeate They the were whole. strong enough yeah. to keep the whole thing going. Yeah. And we now know from biology from the, especially the researchers of William Sheldon, that it's only about 1%, which incidentally is, uh, that corresponds to that 1% that listened to the third program on the, th on the BBC. <laughs> uh, but it's about 1% of the population that actually believes in its ideas so much that it carries them out. And this does not apply only to artists, scientists, and thinkers. It applies to statesmen. It applies to businessmen who do extraordinary things. It applies to other people who insist upon doing the thing they really believe in. It applies, in fact, to everyone who is really truthfully searching for right livelihood. That's, that's right, that's yes. right. So this, this Buddhist concept of right livelihood is very important. Now, this is what self-evolution involves. Yes. And this is the way we will survive. If we don't develop people like this, we won't survive. 
And this is the theme of your new book, as well as of The Hidden Remnant. That's this right. New it's, mu it's much more developed in the new book. The new book, Foresight, Self-Evolution and Survival, by Gerald Sykes, is being published by Bob's Medal this fall. And it is a continuation of the ideas that uh, Gerald Sykes uh, published in The Hidden Remnant in 1962. Uh, Mr. Sykes is teaches at, um, he's professor of interdisciplinary studies, teaching at the New School. And um, he's here with us today on uh, PEN, uh, uh, speaking over WNYC about the interdis interdisciplinary uh, ideas so that uh, p the people should not be um, just scientists or just um, artists, but that they should study each other's disciplines. Is that that is really the that's right, the and, and understand the people around. So there's a continual dialogue. In other words, for such people, there's never a dead moment. There are no dull moments because once you begin to be aware of what the reality of existence is, you're looking for it in everyone. And you develop the gift of empathy. We must realize that in Greek and in English, too, sympathy and empathy are quite different. Sympathy is a spontaneous thing. I see somebody falling out a window, and I gasp with horror because I sympathize with him. But empathy is a conscious feeling of the way into another person's life. And empathy is the only way you can do it. It's the only way one defeats the ego. It's the only way one develops a civilization. And this is one of the, the major themes of, of your new book. I might say that the word civilization was coined by the Marquis de Mirabeau in the 18th century. He was one of the forerunners of the French Revolution, which he promoted. And he said that civilization was impossible without extraordinary women. <laughs> so the feminist movement began right there. With him and Condorcet, the, fem the modern feminist movement well, Which all one? these movements towards a better understanding of yeah. each other, whether yeah. we are trying to understand men trying to understand women or scientists mm. trying to understand yeah. artists, yeah. is uh, it's all a, a fight very, very important. Yes, love is impossible unless the man is really trying to understand the woman and the woman is trying to understand exactly. the man. The woman is my opposite. I never really understand her, but if I don't try to, God help me. Yes, and that's true of everything. If, if uh, we don't try and understand each other, scientists, artists, businessmen and women, everybody, uh, we'll, we'll come to an artistic end, I think. Absolutely. Well, I hope that that will not happen and that people will read your book, Foresight's Self-Evolution and Survival. And thank you very much indeed, Gerald Sykes, for being with us on WNYC over pen portraits with this very interesting talk. Thank you.